0: you have the chance to win a spring super sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps.
1: From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, now that the Democratic race for president is down to Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, which way is Hollywood leaning? Then, Yuval Sharon's new opera is called Sweet Land, and
2: like his other works, it's the result of an intensely collaborative process. You're creating the circumstance for so many things to resonate with each other that are normally not put together. And that creates this new, bigger thing uh, from all of the different individual voices.
1: And home is a sense of place and a physical thing, and one is built on stage in a new play. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. The race to be the Democratic nominee for president is basically down to two candidates now, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, after Elizabeth Warren dropped out today. Warren and former candidate Pete Buttigieg attracted a good amount of support from Hollywood. So where do all those donors and their money go now? Ted Johnson has been covering all this for Deadline.com as its Washington, D.C. correspondent. Ted, welcome back to the show.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: So a lot has changed in the candidate landscape since we last talked. Pete Buttigieg had the support of big names like Lee Daniels and Seth MacFarlane. Since dropping out, Buttigieg endorsed Biden. Have some of his supporters followed?
4: Yes. Some of the uh, fundraisers have committed to Joe Biden's campaign. It actually did fairly quickly after Pete Buttigieg endorsed Biden. And I'm talking about names that aren't really household names, Former executive at NBC Universal, a fundraising consultant, people like Lee Daniels in Seth MacFarlane—they actually hosted a fundraiser for Pete Buddha Judge. They haven't said where they're going to go. Seth MacFarlane has actually tweeted out. The fact that in the last cycle, he endorsed Bernie Sanders. So perhaps he's weighing that decision whether to go for Biden or whether to go for Sanders. So I think people are still still maybe a little bit on the fence, even though there has been this definite movement toward uh, Joe Biden's campaign
1: let's talk more about that. There was a big fundraiser last night hosted by former Paramount Pictures head Sherry Lansing. And I think a lot of the momentum uh, hinges on Biden's performance on Super Tuesday. You wrote in Deadline that I think at one point 80 people were expected and it turned out to be a whole lot more than that. What happened?
4: Well, yeah. Actually, I talked to Sherry Lansing on Monday and since then she continued to get uh, phone calls for people interested in coming to the event. And they finally had to cut it off, I think, at about 350 people. They just couldn't accommodate anymore. To a certain extent, this isn't that surprising because uh, Joe Biden occupies that moderate lane and there aren't a lot of other options left. So. If you are not in favor of Sanders, you're probably naturally going to be looking at uh, Joe Biden if you want to be engaged in this political cycle. We're shaping up to have a Biden-Bernie uh, battle in Hollywood, and we'll see how this plays out. It could be end up being as, as contentious and even nasty as it was back in 2008 when you saw this huge division in Hollywood between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. If there were any lessons
1: learned about that polarization and that fight between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama— How did the town eventually choose? And were there some conflicted feelings about working with people who might have supported another candidate?
4: Yeah, for some people, I think it took them a while. Haim Saban is actually a big name. He's a longtime donor to the Democratic Party, big media executive, uh, known often for mighty Morphin Power Rangers. But he was a figure that was very much behind Hillary Clinton. He appeared on the Today Show, and it took him a while to actually get behind Barack Obama. I think it took him until the fall uh, to support Obama's candidacy. So, It could be even more difficult when you are considering a choice between Biden and Bernie because the division isn't so much behind these two different personalities as it is ideological. This race has been set up as a race between the moderates and the left or the far left, and you didn't see that back in 2008. We're talking with Ted
1: Johnson at Deadline.com about Hollywood's take on the two remaining Democratic candidates. Elizabeth Warren has officially dropped out of the race, but she's not endorsing anybody yet. She has a lot of Hollywood support, people like Chrissy Teigen and Barry Jenkins. Is there any indication yet of where her supporters might go?
4: Again, I think that this is where people could definitely be on the fence between Biden and between Bernie Sanders. Uh, I was uh, at a Warren event in uh, South Carolina last week with John Legend, and he was, I thought, an extraordinarily effective spokesperson for her campaign. He hasn't said uh, who he's going to endorse yet, but he actually would be, uh, I think, a valuable endorsement for either campaign. And he seemed to really kind of reflect this idea that Warren tried to advance that there was kind of a middle ground between what uh, Biden represented and what Sanders represented. Uh, And she uh, she just said at a uh, news conference, apparently I was wrong about that, that there really wasn't that that lane in this Democratic primary. So we'll see what uh, someone like John Legend, how he comes out in supporting either Biden or Sanders.
1: There are some very big Hollywood players who have yet to say where their money is going to go. Do we know which way they're leaning and how influential are they in where other money might go after they pick a candidate?
4: Yes, uh, people like uh, Haim Saban, people like Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg haven't publicly said who they're backing. I would be awfully surprised if they went for Bernie Sanders uh, just because People like, for example, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, he has contributed to multiple candidates in this race except for Sanders. So I, I think that might be an indication right there. Some of these figures wanted to kind of sit out the primary process, but their support can be influential. It has kind of the bandwagon effect. It probably would have been more influential earlier in the primary because it kind of would have rallied the troops behind one of these more moderate candidates. But it will matter to a fair degree, especially in fundraising, especially if uh, someone like a Katzenberg or someone like a Haim Saban not only uh, host fundraisers, but also get involved in some of the super PACs uh, for these campaigns where they can raise uh, much greater sums of money in the millions as opposed to uh, 2800
1: there might be some people in the country who would say to themselves, well, if George Clooney supports this candidate, I'm going to support that candidate. Is that really the factor, though, the celebrity endorsement, or is it more about the money and what the check writing ability can mean for these candidates?
4: Well, I think that it depends on what time in the process, uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence that voters uh, look to celebrities for who they're going to vote for. But what they can do is kind of help elevate a candidate in terms of attention. And that's extremely important during the primary process, probably less important when we get into the general election, when it's just two candidates facing each other. And that's where fundraising tends to become a bigger issue, especially as we get closer and closer to November.
1: Ted Johnson is Washington, D.C. correspondent for Deadline.com. Ted, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Coming up next on The Frame, an experimental outdoor opera about colonialism and a whole lot more. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Yuval Sharon is used to getting some pretty baffled looks when he tries to explain the work of his opera company, which is called The Industry. Sharon's hopscotch, for example, took place inside cars driving around LA. In invisible cities, people listen to his opera on headphones as they move through LA's Union Station. Sharon's latest piece is called Sweetland. It's a collaborative open air opera about colonialism and displacement. It's set in the LA State Historic Park, which is just north of downtown. In Sweetland, opera is used to challenge and dismantle some myths about America's origins. Here's Yuval Sharon.
2: I have been speaking a lot recently about opera in this country being uh, remaining a colonialist art form because so much of opera that we see in this country is the German, French, Italian repertoire in those languages telling those stories. And here we are in America— Uh, retelling these stories over and over again and it seems like, especially in our times now when there is so much to talk about and there is such a need for artists to be speaking about um, the kind of things that that we've taken on with this project and and so much more, it seems strange to go into the privileged sphere of an opera house and hear a story about 19th century Italy. Um, There's something about that that feels so escapist uh, and feels like it's it's trying to uh, pretend like the situation out on the street and in our daily lives, uh, is not as dire as it really is. Um, so. I think that that was, for me, a real push to try and create a piece like like Sweetland. And one of the m- most important aspects of it was creating the conditions for collaboration uh, to really flow, uh, something that would be not another iteration of a kind of hierarchical leadership, um, but the idea that a more horizontal consensus-based creation process would be something that I think could offer a kind of antidote um, to, to some of the problems that we're talking about.
1: Before we talk about the story and the music, I want to ask you about the venue. It's set in the L.A. State Historic Park, and this was native land. It was home to the San Gabriel Band of Mission Indians. Then it was the site of the Southern Pacific Transportation Company's River Station, Mm -hmm. where migrants from around the world would disembark trains. Right. And now it's set against the skyline of downtown Los Angeles, next to a metro track, next to the 110 freeway. There's like a little wine store across the street. <laughs> it's got so much history. Why was it a good place for you to set the story?
2: To me, when we were conceiving of this project, we were thinking about the right site for where this this piece should take place. And of course, we started thinking about things like warehouses or alternative spaces, but but, you know, still interior spaces. And I was hearing from my collaborators over and over again how much um, the relationship to land was such a crucial aspect of what they wanted to explore with this piece. And when it comes to that relationship with land, it seemed to me that one of the only, one of the one of the the places that that really holds so much of LA's cultural history and, and meaning is that sliver of land. Uh, that is now the LA State Historic Park. Uh, you mentioned it's a couple of its iterations, but it's had so many others for a long time. It was considered a brownfield, as if uh, meaning that they didn't think that anything could grow on it anymore because of how terribly it was uh, maintained during industrialization and during the, the railroad era. Um, so, so thinking that, and it wasn't until Lauren Bond came up with her Not a Cornfield project, this really bold experiment in kind of replanting um, the land and showing its continuous uh, fertility, uh, before that, people sort of abandoned it and thinking that that was the most important Tongva village, that it was the site of this uh, crucial uh, Spanish settlement, that it was this uh, floodplain. All of those things for a while were buried under layers of industrialization, and thanks to Lauren and th- thanks now to the park, it has, um, it has this new life to it, but those layers um, still struggle to come out, those voices that are still part of the archeology. span that layering effect that's in the land um, still has a lot of voices that have been suppressed and a big part of what the opera was about was not to pinpoint any one particular language or one particular story to, to lift up but instead to think uh, about and to invite the audience to contemplate um, those stories that are in the land that we're on. We're talking with
1: Yuval Sharon about the new opera Sweetland I want to play a clip of the music and some of the libretto from your opera
2: So what are we hearing here? Who are these voices and where does this fall in the story? (laughs) These are the amazing voices of um, three artists that are involved in the piece. Three of 36 different vocal artists. In addition to 24 instrumentalists that have all made up what this piece is about. Um, You're hearing um, uh, Janine Washington as guide, Carmina Escobar as one of the coyotes, and Michaela Tobin as the other coyote. Uh, These are three characters. um, They form a really crucial component to what this piece is, especially Carmina and Michaela, who are two artists who have uh, dealt a lot with improvisation and the practice of improvisation, which is something that most people don't think belong in a traditional opera. We think of opera as a, a very rigid, closed, Uh, score. This notion that you're creating a condition for music to flow rather than just recreate a set score. And that plays a really important role in Sweetland, not just because of these three artists, but um, it started to be something that we opened up to the instrumentalists, to some of the other singers as well. And I think that's part of what gives this particular performance its power, is that it is something that is so of the moment Um, that the inspiration that all of the singers take from each other and from the ideas are all kind of set up and then allowed to just exist in that moment in time. And it is beautiful to behold. So much of this story seems to be about dominion
1: and Mm -hmm. about whose land is this Mm -hmm. land? Is it Mm -hmm. ours to exploit? Is it God's gift to us? Was that something that you found yourself talking about repeatedly, Mm. about who owns what? And by owning it, is it more important to share it?
2: It was the topic of so many conversations and, um, I you know I really wish my my partners were here uh to talk about this because their their points of view on this were, were so beautiful and so illuminating and um you know ownership is something that we really all struggle with and it's it's actually part of thinking about even this piece who owns this piece I don't think any one of us owns this piece and that is such a beautiful counterexample to this notion of um coming to a land and and saying that you own it um Chinupa Hanskaluger who is the co-director and my kind of closest partner as uh, as uh, in in so many aspects of this you know he said repeatedly and so so beautifully the notion that um, we belong to the land uh, that 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 uh, you know that that that's that that notion of it is is really what we were trying to convey with this piece uh, and it's something that's so contradictory to how we're th- how we are told to think about the land in capitalist terms or in terms of pure consumerism, that, um, that we own it, whether or not it's because of religious purposes, certainly in our more secular age, um, the remnants of that uh, religious fervor that made us believe that we could own the land, that we, that we deserve the land, that, that the people that were here don't exist, uh, that they're not even human. All of that thinking now has these sediments over it that have resulted in the idea that, oh, because I have the money, uh, the I, I deserve I deserve the land, and that's something that we look at in train. The train. So there are two different tracks. Yeah. One is called train. <laughs> one is called feast. <laughs> yes. uh, I
1: went on the feast track, and the train is a complementary, if
2: not somewhat different, track. Yeah, they they both tell different stories, but they undergo the same process, which is looking at a kind of authentic experience the first time around through train one and feast one. And um, you leave those two spaces and you come back to those two spaces, but they've been transformed. They've been whitewashed, they've been redacted. The history that you experienced is still there, but in a way you're kind of gaslit to believe a different kind of vision of what actually happened. It's somewhat like our education process that tells us stories about what the first Thanksgiving was like, you know, Um, and it's in a way, of course, has a very political point of view, which is to try and establish a kind of a narrative that gives us that sense of dominion. And that uh, unraveling all of that was really one of our key ideas. So much of music is spectator-driven, and it's true of
1: opera as well. How do you make sure that the spectator at Sweetland becomes a participant
2: in the story after it's over? This is a piece, like I think the other pieces for the industry, that the audience must complete. We left everything quite incomplete and quite open for the explicit purpose of allowing the audience to take ownership of this story and the ideas in this story This is uh, an opera that lets no one off the hook and is an opera that gives nobody a gold star for being there. (laughs) So we sometimes think that when pieces have a political point of view, uh, it's meant to make us feel more like like more enlightened citizens for uh, for having experienced it. and, And then and then maybe letting us feel like we've done our job because we've we we showed up. But showing up is just the beginning of a very long process, and that includes the process that we all undertook as the creators of the piece. This is not the end of the uh, this is not the end of the line <laughs> with this piece. This is, in many ways, a really, really um, profound beginning to what I think is going to be a lifelong reflective process for everyone. Um, and, and and I don't know what that's going to lead to. This is, like I said, if it's the beginning, it means that we are we are actually starting uh, on this road together rather than completing it.
1: Yuval, great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, John. Yuval Sharon and the Industry Sweetland is at the L.A. State Historic Park Friday through Sunday through March 15th. Coming up on The Frame, a theater artist explores the notion of home, By building a house on stage.
3: Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there.
1: Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. What do you think of when you think of home? Theater artist Jeff Sobel thinks of growing up here in Southern California with friends and family. But he also thinks about the physical structure and history of the houses that he grew up in. Starting tonight, Sobel explores those ideas at the Broad Stage in Santa Monica, where his latest project, Called Home, makes its L.A. premiere. The Frame contributor Marcos Nahara has our story. (laughs)
0: If you want to get a glimpse as to what inspires Jeff Sobel, you have to look no further than his home. Hello? That's because Jeff Sobel's mom and dad still live in one of the West LA houses he grew up in. And since Sobel's theater project is called Home, I asked Jeff if I could meet up with him and his LA family while he's here. It's a homecoming of sorts for Sobel, who usually lives on the East Coast with his wife and newborn. But when I knocked on the door of Liz and Dick Sobel's Westside home, there wasn't anybody there. And then I got a text from Jeff saying the clown car was pulling up from dinner and to hang tight. Okay, is, is this the clown car? Yeah, you're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Moments later, an SUV pulled up the driveway, and so bells of all ages started pouring out of the car.
3: Hi, nice to Hi. see you.
0: <laughs> and that is when the fun started.
3: This is my dad, Dick. we Tell me. A total meltdown. What's happening, Mom? Oh, the the really little a one a little is little having crisis. a meltdown. So- we'll yeah. all be there soon. Oh, gosh. Please <laughs> take your time. Welcome, Marcos. Welcome, oh, Marcos. <laughs> So we
1: thought we'd kind of sit. I don't sure. know. Sit around the table. We have a, some wine. Lovely. This
3: is a conversational incentive here. <laughs> You want some cheese? Every night here, there's a cheese platter. <laughs> this is how the Cebells roll. Mm-hmm. That is a kind creamery.
0: And together, we take a trip down memory lane.
4: When did
3: you graduate, then?
4: '56. Undergrad. Undergrad. '60 law school. Can you tell us about Stanford in those days? I was studying the whole time in the library. <laughs> <laughs> well, we used to hash for the law school, but we, and then we all had nicknames. I was Waldo. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what
0: well, the nuts and bolts of it, can we, Can you guys tell me a little bit
3: about the project? Yeah, of course. So the project, Home, I think of it as a dance theater. Um, it's not a piece of dramatic text or something like that. There are no lines. There's no dialogue. There are no real characters. But so much of the show was about the memories that we all have of the homes we grew up in.
0: That is Jeff's sister, Stephanie Sobel. On this project, she's the dramaturg.
3: And so I think that aspect of it, and kind of the ways that are not necessarily the places we live, but our imagination of home is very much a container of of memories. Instead, it's more like you have a voyeuristic point of view, watching people um, inhabit a house. And a big big, uh, point of departure was imagining a given... Oh.
0: As Jeff is telling me about the project, his wife, Sophie, brings their newborn Louise okay, to join like, our
3: conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sophie is an actress in the that. show.
3: But it, it, it's, it's more um, asking you to, to realize that you, you are always haunting a space for the people that come after you. And it, likewise, you're also sort of sharing space with the people that come before and after you. Uh, so you have all these roommates. You just don't necessarily uh, acknowledge them or know that they are there. Like ancestors? Could be, if that's the way you want to go. It, 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 we leave a lot of this up to the audience. Cool. So if people take it to be ancestors, awesome. Or that, where you just went with that makes me think of the people that just were here. It's it's a way of considering who was here before us.
0: When Sabell first started exploring this project nearly three years ago, he was working with a director who said it reminded him of a movie from the 80s. That movie is called Tango. It's an animated short film directed by Zbigniew Rybczynski. It took home the Oscar for Best Animated Short in 1983. In the short film, we see dancers passing in and out of rooms in a house. They're cooking, cleaning, making love, flirting, sleeping, and talking, enjoying
3: each other's company. They're living life, in other ways. It's hard. Our lives are busy. It's hard to... Uh, think of more than what's right in front of us at any given moment. Um, This project allows us a little bit of space to take uh, that that step back. I was mentioning voyeurism, Mm -hmm. where it's like you're able to see a life that's happening in a house with the facade ripped away. And then you... If you are so inclined, may put yourself in that uh, continuum as well. If you're still wondering
0: what the show Home is all about, all you have to do is wrangle an invitation to come over to Dick and Liz's house in Santa Monica. Hopefully, they'll have a little wine and cheese waiting for you. For The Frame, I'm Marcos Najera. Jeff
1: Sobel's home is at the Broad Stage in Santa Monica tonight through Sunday, and that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moen Broadcast Center.